0: Good evening, everybody. My name is Sahar Amr, and I'm professor of Arabic and Islamic Studies and chair of the department here at the University of Sydney. And I am really pleased to see so many of you here tonight. And um, I would like to welcome you to um, the inaugural event of the project, a continuing spring Arab and Australian Views on Social Justice, Equal Economic Development and Cultures of Freedom, which is sponsored by the Council for Australian Arab Relations, the University of Sydney's Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies, and by the State, Religion and Society Network in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. Before I introduce the project and our speakers tonight, and the forum, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodianship of country. The project tonight brings together Arab scholars, activists, community leaders, administrators, students, and the general public to discuss and analyze Arab and Australian perspectives of the 2011 Arab revolutions. As chair of the Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies, I very much value our collaboration with the Arab-Australian community and affirm our commitment to continue working together to promote the knowledge of Arab cultures in Sydney and Australia. We are especially pleased to welcome tonight with us representatives of some of our partner organizations. Some of them are here with us and some of them um, I will just mention by name and they send their apologies. Ms. Fadia Aboud, co-director of the Arab Film Festival, she's not with us tonight. Um, Mr. Amir Salem, representative of the Australian Egyptian Council Forum. Mr. Firas El-Naji, representative of the Australian Iraqi Graduate Forum. Um, The Consul General of Egypt, Mr. Ayman Kamil, um, who is also with us tonight. The title of the project, A Continuing Spring, challenges misconceptions about current political events in the Arab world. If the process which started in late 2010 in Tunisia was dubbed a spring, as mainstream media has labeled it, then it must be understood as a continuing spring, to use the phrase that Egyptian intellectual and activists have been using over the past four years, a continuing revolution, thawra Mustamira. We are only witnessing today the first phase of a long political and cultural process whose origins are rooted in the history of social movements in the Arab world, and whose outcomes will be visible only in the medium and long term. This year, during the tenure of the Continuing Spring Project, we plan to analyze the evolving situation in the Arab world via a series of seminars, public lectures, films, and we certainly hope to see all of you at these events. In fact, I would love to draw your attention to the sheet of paper that is currently circulating. It was at the door at the beginning. Please leave your contact information if you would like to be kept informed of our events. And I certainly hope that all of you will put down your um, names and information. Um, but let's come back to the first event in this series, which is pl- taking place tonight and focusing on Egypt. The reason for choosing Egypt to begin the series is due to the fact that not only is it the most populated country in the Arab world but also because it is the country of birth of Arab modernity, a nation with a long history of social and political movements including feminism, socialism, and Islamism. The dramatic events that occurred in Egypt over the last three years are rooted in the modern history of the country and they can only be understood if analyzed from this historical perspective. Tonight, we have a panel of experts on Egypt, which, and they will discuss the opportunities and challenges of three years of uprising. And I'm just going to introduce our speakers and let them and give the floor to them. And I will start with the very um, far um, side of the table with David Hardaker, who is the chair of the panel. And he's a television producer and former ABC's Middle East correspondent from 2006, 2008. Yes. From 2004 to 2006, Mr. Hardaker lived in Alexandria and then Cairo, where he studied Arabic and taught journalism at the American University in Cairo. From 2009 to 2013, he worked for an Abu Dhabi government organization where he established training programs for reporters in state-owned Arabic media organizations across the Gulf. Mr. Hardaker is an award-winning journalist, having received the Walkley for his radio coverage of the Israel-Hezbollah war of 2006. Um, Next to David, uh, we are pleased to have with us Anthony Bibalo, who is research director at the Lowy Institute for International Policy here in Sydney, and director of the West Asia program covering the Middle East, um, Central, and Southwest Asia. From 1996 to 1999, Dr. Bubalo served in Australian diplomatic missions in Saudi Arabia and Israel and was Senior Middle East Analyst with the Office of National Assessments. From 2002 to 2003, he was Director of the Policy and Coordination Unit of the Australian Government's Iraq Task Force. Mr. Bubalo's research focuses on Australian policy towards West Asia and the linkages between West and East Asia. Dr. Bibalo has published a great deal on Islamism, democratization, and energy um, security, especially in Egypt, Israel, and the Gulf countries. He regularly provides expert commentaries on Middle East politics for the Australian and international media outlets. Next to him is Dr. Hisham Helier, who is currently Um, non-resident fellow with the project on U.S. relations with the Islamic world at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Dr. Hellyer is also associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London and a research associate at the Kennedy School at Harvard University. Dr. Hilliard is an expert in Arab politics, contemporary Islamist political movements, and security issues. And he has been called upon by different governmental and non-governmental organizations in the US to work on task forces on radicalization and extremism or to participate in teams tackling issues of counterterrorism. Dr. Hellyer has authored several books and monographs and has contributed more than 25 book chapters and journal articles. And I will just quote some of his most recent publications, Muslims of Europe, The Other Europeans, Engagement with the Muslim Community and Counterterrorism, British Lessons for the West, and The Chance for Change in the Arab World, Egypt Uprising. Dr. Hellyer is in Sydney with us this week, and he will be participating in the conference entitled The Arab World, Iran, and the Major Powers, Transitions, and Challenges in Canberra, which is organized by the Center for Arab Islamic Studies at the Australian National University, which sponsored his travel. And last, but not least, is Lucia Sorbera, who is my colleague here in the Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies, and she is the lead coordinator of the Continuing Spring Project. Dr. Sorbera's research focuses on Egyptian cultural and political history, on gender and women history, and Arabic literature. Before joining the University of Sydney, um, Dr. Sorbera studied in Italy, Lebanon, and Egypt, and she taught at a number of Italian universities. She currently serves on the board of directors of the Italian Society for Middle East Studies, on the editorial board on the book series Women and Gender History, and on the academic board of the Summer School of the Italian Society of Women Historians. Dr. Sorbera has published extensively on Arab women's autobiography, Arab women's political leadership, and Iraqi cinema. Her most recent article is Challenges of Thinking Feminism and Revolution in Egypt between 2011 and 2014, which has just appeared in a special issue of Postcolonial studies dedicated to the revolution. Without further ado, let me turn the floor to our panel of experts, and please join me in welcoming them.
1: Thank you very much wonderful introduction as we meet tonight the timing could not be more pressing could it i mean we have peter gresters case due to be decided even as we sit here i'm told between 6 and 7 p.m. you wouldn't want to bank on that would you but hopefully in the time frame that we're here we will find out that decision and uh, i think hisham has volunteered to be the bearer of the uh, of the of the decision when it comes to hand As we last understood it, the judge was um, reluctant to... ..was in the building but reluctant to come out. So, heavens knows what that means. It's not just about us talking to each other and amongst each other. This is a conversation. So, uh, we will be interweaving questions from very early on. So, we'll kick off the discussion, but the floor is open very soon after that. I I guess we all know the events of the last three and a half years in a sense it seems to have come full circle that might be you know, up itself open to uh, interpretation. I have found, I don't know about you, but I have found observers of Egypt kind of split into two camps. There are those who believe that the military should have seized power, and those who believe that the military should not have seized power, and that the Muslim Brotherhood should have been enabled and allowed to govern whoever would enable and allow is another question. So, I would like to kick off with that question as to where our panelists stand on that, uh, what I see as kind of a dividing line about how we view the events of Egypt. Um, and Hisham, why don't we start with you? He starts with the easy questions.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> start with the easy one first. Well, thank you very much. Uh, before I answer that question, many thanks to Lucio Solbero, to Sahar, uh, to the school and the university for arranging this evening. Uh, it's the first time I've been in Australia, it's the first time in Sydney, and it's a great pleasure to be here. And um, as our moderator has mentioned, uh, the timing is certainly quite prescient. Um, I didn't know that the verdict in the trial would be issued today, let alone that it would be issued, presumably, um, while I'm talking. And I have to offer my apologies to all of you, because as I'm talking to all of you and thinking about what to say, I'm also very anxiously looking at at this iPad trying to figure out what is actually going on back in Cairo, uh, where I was a few days ago. Um, Greetings to all of you, and thank you for making the time to come out this evening. So July, uh, I was going to say July 3rd, but actually using phrases like July 3rd or June 30th actually gives a little bit away when you answer that question about whether or not the military should or should not have intervened last summer. Um, But I would challenge the the framing of the question um, because that's that's what I do. Um, I make things difficult when they're supposed to be simple. Um, I did not support uh, the June 30th protests last year. Um, I was not unhappy to see uh, then President Morsi depart. Now, if those things sound contradictory, um, I assure you there are many more other contradictions in the context of Egyptian politics that we can unfold and and problematize over the coming hour. Um, I didn't support the June 30th protests because I feared that they would lead only to one place, which would be violence during the protests themselves. Um, I had in mind two crowds coming into contact with, with each other and for the military to then step in to remove the president at the time after a a great deal of bloodshed took place. As it turned out, there was a little bit of bloodshed during those initial days. There wasn't much, um, but there was a little, and the military intervened, overthrew the democratically elected president of Egypt, um, and arrested him along with a number of others, and put in process a new transitional government. Um, the bloodshed that I was so concerned about during those initial days took place later. Um, so you, you might consider by that comment that I fall into the latter category, but I don't consider myself to be part of that latter category because I didn't think that it was possible for Mohammed Morsi to remain in office either. And this is where I think we, we have to be careful about uh, framing this sort of discussion in, in these two ways. Um, I thought that it was actually very unlikely for very practical reasons that it would be possible for Mohamed Morsi to remain in office past June 30th, particularly after the very first day where pretty much every member of his cabinet deserted him. I also, unlike many colleagues that I knew who were very quick to condemn the coup, and it was a coup um, at the time, I, I, I felt very, very conflicted on July 3rd. I remember being interviewed by CNN on July 3rd in the evening uh, just next to Tahrir Square and thinking that this is a very uncomfortable situation, this sets into the process a very bad precedent because it means that a government can be removed by a military even though there were protests um, and we don't know what's going to happen next. At the same time, and this is where uh, I think I I diverged with many of my colleagues in the Western Analytical Circuit, um, I also thought, and I still think, that it was overwhelmingly popular. And that's a very uncomfortable sort of position to be in. Um, Not me personally, but I think the Egyptian people. Uh, I think genuinely the overwhelming majority of Egyptians, if you'd asked them on July 3rd, Um, Do you support the military removing Mohammed Morsi? I think the overwhelming majority, and I'd say at least 70 to 75 percent of the population would have said yes, we do. And I think that says something very interesting about the political situation in Egypt, where the Egyptian military as an institution is incredibly popular and has been throughout the past four years and even before. And there there are reasons for that, There, there are long historical ones for it. Um, and that they would have been very much in favor, I think, um, of a military intervention that essentially suspended democracy. And what does that say about that political system? I think it says that it's quite unhealthy, that it's at a certain stage, a mature stage of its development. Um, and I also think that there were other ways that the Egyptians could have gone down during those days. I think Mohamed Morsi could have called for early presidential elections, I think that was one way. Um, I think that there were other uh, routes for the military um, and the rest of the political elite to pursue because it became very clear that even though Mohamed Morsi had legal authority on July 3rd, he lacked any executive authority, let alone popular authority. And where does that leave everybody? So on July 3rd, um, I want to put myself into either one of those two camps that you mentioned. I was very concerned. I did think it was overwhelmingly popular. Um, I think, I don't know if anybody will agree or not as to whether or not that's actually been borne out over the past year, but I still happen to think that that is true. Um, I was very concerned about two types of violence on July 3rd. um, Violence from supporters of Mohamed Morsi and violence against supporters of Mohamed Morsi. And both of those fears I think were justified and unfortunately have been realized in, in more ways than I care to count. The, the largest number of Egyptian civilians having met their deaths at the hands of both state and non-state forces over the past year. So uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'll hand back over to the moderator and apologies for problematising your question. Oh, the no, please, over. most welcome. Uh,
3: Anthony. Thanks. I'm not sure I'm going to add to the problematising. I agree with a lot, a lot of what um, Hisham has said. You know, I, was, I would have been one of those Western analysts who would have said that the military taking over was a bad idea without disagreeing with Hisham on the popularity of that action. I think he's right it was popular and the military remain popular today. Mm. But the the question is whether what's popular is is wise. Absolutely, and and, and And I think it was very unwise. And in terms of Egypt's democratic transition, in terms of the move that was made, I think that where we've got to today was maybe not the inevitable conclusion, but the very likely one. I think my problem with the framing of the question is that it's a bit like Tony Blair's speech a few weeks ago. It throws it into a, you know, you're either with the generals or you're with the Islamists, you know, a little bit. Mm. And I think that's a really problematic bifurcation. Because for me, the most important casualty of what's happened um, since July last year is not just been Egypt's democratic transition. I mean, you know, obviously, as as a process, that has been a key casualty. But the most important casualties are those people that have been swept up in the crackdown by the security forces. The kind of the, the thousands of people that have found themselves in jail, uh, the thousands of people that have been killed or injured as a result of the violence that we've seen since July. And those people don't fall into neat categories of. You know pro the military or pro the Islamist there are plenty that fall into a, a third category and I think the da- the great danger particularly in terms of western policy making now uh, and and for me um, you know the kind of the sheer cynicism illustrated in blair's speech a few weeks ago this is where he, he stood up and said, look you know we have a we have a choice and we have to make a choice between we either stand with the generals who he kind of you know described as a, like the great models of of openness and for an open economy and, and for, you know, uh, um, for a, a modern, a modern, uh, modern countries and modern societies, you know, against uh, the Islamists. Um, when, for me, the generals and the Islamists sit on the same side. If you are going to make choices, the choices are between the younger generation, not always the younger, but the younger or youngish generation of Egyptians that came to the streets to overthrow Mubarak, that worked um, not always effectively and not always in the smartest way, but worked to actually transform uh, Egypt, who actually wanted a thoroughgoing revolution, for whom Egypt's um, Mubarak's ouster was not the last day of the revolution, it was the first day of the revolution. And herein lies the, the problem. For me, the real target of the military's actions was not the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood. The real target of the military's actions were these people, the people that now also find themselves in jail alongside the Muslim Brotherhood, because it's these people that actually threaten not just the military, but threaten the status quo in Egypt, threaten uh, those parts of the old regime that lost something or or felt they were about to lose something when Mubarak went, threaten the economic interests of these groups, because it's these people, not the Muslim Brotherhood, that were calling for a thoroughgoing revolution. The Muslim Brotherhood was prepared to make a deal with the Mubarak regime right up to the last moment um, before Mubarak fell, they worked hand in glove, uh, well, not quite hand in glove, but they worked f- pretty effectively with the military for uh, much of the period that they, that they ruled, and the next day that they're suddenly terrorists. The people that the military really feared, and, and this is where you have to talk about three options rather than two, the people that the military really f- feared are the people that wanted a genuine, a thoroughgoing uh, revolution and transformation of Egyptian society.
1: Thanks, Anthony. The... I mean, to clarify, the, the question is do you live with the product of or the outcome of a, a democratic process or do you not? So, you know, I mean, you know, uh, I don't think anybody's particularly barracking for the military in this. No. But, um, you know, it, when you open up the process, do you accept the results come what may or do you intervene? Sorry. And Lucia, maybe I could uh, if I don't, I might just get a comment from Lucia on this.
4: Thank you. First... Uh, I, I look at these uh, events uh, with the lenses of the historian and so I'm not the best person to think about the present if not in a historical perspective. And I have to say that actually the, in my view the military didn't took over, they were already there. And they've been there for more than 50 years uh, and they didn't left uh, the, the scenes of the political power uh, not even uh, uh, under the rule of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, And uh, I would also challenge the idea that uh, both the Muslim Brotherhoods uh, and later Mohammed Morsi were properly democratically elected in the way we think about democracy in uh, in our countries. So these elections were held under military rules. And uh, there were people, the the so-called third square, uh, uh, which Anthony also was making reference to the, which were challenging the idea that elections should happen under such conditions. The, most of the new emerging political forces didn't, couldn't even organize themselves, and uh, they had less economic resources to organize for the elections, uh, and they were basically excluded from uh, the so-called uh, uh, transition. And, uh, mm, The long-lasting continuity which I can see in Egyptian politics uh, is a stronger patriarchal approach to politics, uh, which does not mean just that uh, uh, women political leaders uh, tend to be excluded, but uh, that uh, whoever challenges uh, the idea of a patriarchal order uh, is excluded uh, from the political game. And uh, in this case uh, who are paying the price uh, of this patriarchal order and uh, both the Muslim Brotherhoods and the army, they share this and uh, the um, the regime of Mubarak, they all share this patriarchal vision of politics, uh, are the Revo- the true revolutionaries, you know, people who dreams of another kind of countries uh, and who's trying to build a different political process.
1: Uh, Hisham, I think you wanted to jump in a little early on. Thank you, Lucia. I did,
2: just to, uh, just to say in, in response to your comment about yeah. how, um, how do we react to a democratic process when we, we don't like it. Mm. Um, now, in some, in some countries, um, such as the US, You you elect the president and he's there, he's stuck. Uh, You're stuck with your choice for four years. Um, In the UK, where I'm from, that's not necessarily the case. You do have snap elections, you do have early elections, Uh, precisely when it it happens to be the case that you have a problem of popular authority or legitimacy. Now obviously in the UK, given its history and its, its current context, even if Cameron um, if his popularity dipped into single digits. I don't think that the armed forces would necessarily intervene to remove him, however as popular that might turn out to be. Um, the, uh, the, the, th- the problem that I had with the June 30th wasn't the call for early presidential elections. In fact, I thought that it was actually a very good call, I just thought it would never happen. I thought it was incredibly unlikely that Mohamed Morsi would actually call for early presidential elections, even if 70 million People went to the streets, and I'm not, I'm not legitimizing, by the way, the numbers that have been thrown out time and time again of 30 or 40 or whatever million people that came out. The next stage in, the, in, in my mind then would be that there would be many people that would go out, that he would not step down, and they had made it very clear that the Marrut campaign had made it very clear that they would stay until he was in a position to call for early presidential elections or else. And this or else made me very uncomfortable, because I didn't think that there was any way or else should be satisfied without violence or without some sort of military intervention. Both, I was actually far more worried about violence than I was about the military getting involved, because I thought that that would be a precursor to the latter. So I, I'm bringing this up because. Uh, The framing that we've had, um, I'm not so sure about Australia, but the frame that we've had in the US and the UK, and indeed within Egypt, is that the very idea of calling for early presidential elections was somehow undemocratic. And I don't think it was. But I do think that there would have been many other alternatives on July 3rd to July 3rd that would have been far more democratic in a million different ways than what eventually took place, which was the military removing a democratically elected president.
1: Okay, so uh, you called it a coup.
2: Yes, I did. Unequivocally a coup. I, uh, on July 1st, I said that this is a coup. Uh, That was after the ultimatum was given. On Mm. July 3rd, I made it very clear that it was a coup, Mm. but I also made it very clear, which annoyed a lot of people, that I believed it was a very popular coup um, and that the majority of the Egyptian people would have signed up to it. Now, that says something, okay? It doesn't make me happy, but it is something I must recognize, right? So this anti-coup, Okay, movement, I do not consider it to be legitimate because I think it, it has its own problems, which okay. is precisely the one about popular legitimacy.
3: There, I mean, there's an important point here, and, and it's you know, Hisham has pointed to it, is you are not talking about a full-blown democracy, so it's not about what you do, what's legitimate in a, in a full-blown democracy, one where institutions develop, uh, the rules of the game are established. You're talking about a democratic transition, and this is the, the great challenge for all democratic transitions, is how do you manage that process of getting to a non-democratic state to a democratic state where the institutions are formed, the rules Indeed. are formed, and everyone abides by them. Yeah. Some countries can do that. Yeah. You know, Indonesia was a great uh, example of how you got there for, for its own reasons. And frankly, I thought some of them were applicable in an Egyptian case. I think a lot of it had to do with the attitude that, that almost all the political actors in the Egyptian spectrum took, um, which in many respects was, I think was a quite negative one, which was... How, do, how does this better serve my interests rather than how does it serve the interests of a, of a democratic transition that in the long term is going to serve my interests because the system is more open. I get to contest elections. I get to win-lose. Um, um, but Hisham raises a really, really important point. As, as negative as I am towards uh, what happened in July, and you know, I certainly see it as a coup, um, uh, it, I can't answer the, you know the, the question of what do you do that situation? Do you simply say, well, OK, he was democratically elected, and even if he's working to undermine the democratic processes that brought him to power, you just have to sit back and wait for the next election. Clearly, in that tra- system of transition, you
2: can't do that. So, um, just to make this more complicated, um, Sorry, Anthony. Um, I actually really wanted him to stay for four years, yeah. but I had a very—I have to admit—a very. Um, uh, how do I put this? A very selfish reason for doing so. Um, my impression of the brotherhood in Egypt and particularly Mohammed Morsi was that it, it, was, um, it was a phase that I thought the Egyptian political process had yeah. to go through mm-hmm. and my ideal scenario would have been for Mohammed Morsi to actually succeed in remaining for four years and being voted out of office and then we would never hear about this ever again. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, Sorry, that was, w- w-
1: would that have happened, do you think? I think
2: when you get to presidential elections, um, it would have definitely happened. Mm. Um, keeping in mind, Mohamed Morsi won by literally a hair okay, against a representative of the former regime. Okay? And there is no doubt in my mind that from, July, uh, from uh, January 2013 onwards, had there been presidential elections, he would have lost. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And that's what I wanted to happen. What I was concerned about, and this was months before July, I was, con- uh, I, I was, t- I was actually writing about a coup in March 2013. Um, I didn't think it would happen like this at all. I'm not that good of an analyst. I don't, I don't want anybody to think I predicted that. But I did predict the date. I did say there would be July. But I thought there would be July because July is the, most, uh, is the hottest month of the year. Mm-hmm. It also happened to be Ramadan. Okay, which is the most expensive month of the year. So I thought that when you put those two things together, with a very bad economic situation, that a repeat of what actually had happened in January and February in Suez in Egypt, where the army did come out to restore order, that that would again be the case all across Egypt, uh, as a result of things like food riots. Okay, so while I wanted him to complete his term, I really wondered if that would be possible without there being widespread chaos at some point because of things like that, because of food rights and so on. So um, I, I'm actually not that sympathetic to the idea that he would have been successful, even if he had had the intention, and I think that there's good evidence to suggest that, if, he, if Morsi and the Brotherhood had been successful and actually destabilizing the democratic values of the institutions that existed, such as they are anyway. Yeah. I, I didn't think that he would have that opportunity. And I don't mean opportunity in terms of time, but in terms of capacity within those institutions. And you saw it very clearly that the institutions passed a certain point. It wasn't from day one, but past a certain point in Mohamed Morsi's tenure, mm. they rebelled. Very clearly, they rebelled. It wasn't straight away. And um, you, you hear now all of these stories of how the police were working against Mohammed Morsi from day one and so on. That's rubbish. We know very clearly that the police were taking their orders from the presidency, from the ministers uh, that he had appointed, um, and were, for example, attacking protesters in front of Itahadaya in December of 2012. But it did happen. I think around March, April time, you could definitely see that shift.
3: Would you include the judiciary in that analysis?
2: No. The judiciary... uh, Well, in terms of the judiciary, I think very early on uh, made it very clear that they were going to use the letter of the law. Um, regardless of how uh, how the situation called for things, um, regardless of the fact that there had been an uprising a couple of years earlier, uh, I think they made that very, very clear. Um, and I, I think it was a bad battle for Mohammed Morsi to actually wage. Um, I think that the, the judiciary from very early on were very uncomfortable with the idea of Mohammed Morsi in power because they suspected that he would start to make significant changes. Um, and indeed, that's exactly what he tried to do. Um, and his major misstep, I think, during besides the fact that he didn't call for the presidential elections, his major misstep during his year was actually the quote-unquote constitutional decree yeah. of November 2012, where he essentially put himself and his decisions above the law. And I, th- I think that that was the beginning of the end for him. You know, you, you mentioned the um, Uh, the non-Islamist, non-former regime camp. And I think some of them could have actually been brought over to a more inclusive presidency under Mohamed Morsi. From that point on, it becomes incredibly difficult to imagine that as being possible.
1: Yeah. Lucia, do you want to comment on this? Because I think we should take some questions from the audience uh, around this question.
4: Yes, I just uh, wanted to... I'm sorry.
2: I apologize for interrupting. Um, the verdict is in, and the verdict, uh, according to what I've been told right now, is that uh, Peter Gresti has been sentenced to seven years in jail. Um, and that the same applies to Mohammed Fadl-Fahmi, to Baham Muhammad. Um Three journalists tried in absentia, apparently have gotten ten years, including Sue Torton. René um, Natchez, five of the, of the six defendants present.
1: Okay, that's pretty devastating, um, mm. <clears throat> uh, quite devastating. I, I, I think, um, I, I you know, hate to say it, predictable. Mm. Um, you know, the sense you get even from here is that it's such a fever pitch in Cairo around the issue that it, it, it could not have gone another way. Um, boy as a journalist you know you, you think um, and I, I worked there for a while and I recall being um, I recall filing a story for the ABC for Foreign Correspondent and the, the, the um, executive producer kept saying you know you've got, to call, you've got to call Mubarak a tyrant and a dictator and I said well why don't you come here and live and do that too you know so it's always in your mind as a journalist that anything can happen uh, but um, that's, that's quite um, quite shocking really Thanks, Hisham. Um, look, why don't we curl around to this later? What it all means, because I think we should. You were you were developing a line of thought there, Lucia.
4: Yes, I of course I completely forgot what it was developing, but it's uh, the. This verdict is the, the the last one of a long list that we are experiencing in the last uh, months and in the last years. Uh, the the blogger and Egyptian activist Al Abdel Fattah, alongside uh, other uh, 26 yeah. people, have been sentenced to 15 years. Uh, and you you should figure out that these. These people, they are about between their 30s and their 40s. And sentencing them to 15 years uh, has has not only symbolic but also practical consequences. uh. Uh, You you know, you you get rid of them from the public life uh, if uh, the sentence is applied uh, for most uh, of their active life. And, uh, and this is something which, uh, in other countries, uh, in Egypt, uh, already happened in the in the 80s uh, and under Sadat regime, uh, under Nasser regimes, intellectuals and activists were the first uh, to be put in jail. Unfortunately, there is uh, a literature of, of memoirs uh, from the jails uh, written by men and women's <coughs> activists. Uh, and uh, uh, Morocco happen, uh, experienced the same things. Uh, uh, and uh, it's a uh, it's a long list unfortunately, to which uh, the you know now we we add also foreigners, uh, journalists and uh, and that's very uh, shocking and sad but uh, it's it's really uh, this is not really the, the Egypt that uh, that we know. Egypt that we know is an inclusive Egypt uh, and uh, I think that main mistake that uh, uh, all the governments which uh, succeeded after the 25th of January revolution made uh, was to forget the history of inclusiveness of, of Egypt. And, um, and each of them have forgot to uh, to include the, the other part. They, they exchanged uh, the, the political adversary with the enemy. And, uh, and this can't be uh, a sane political process at all. I think
1: a gentleman here had
5: I, don't want, I just want to say, with respect, I think you're overreacting emotionally, and I wouldn't be surprised to see the head of the government overturn this verdict or absolve it in this way. It's a 50-50. They have their cake and eat it too. But my question comes to you about the fundamental issue you haven't touched on, and that is democracy itself. I think two of you talked about it a little bit. I'm just wondering whether this is the fault of people like George Bush, who uh, went around at, uh, many years ago saying that he wanted to see the Middle East become democratic. And my question, that's part of it, but my question here is, is Egypt and other countries ready for democracy now? I think that should be addressed, and maybe that tells us to put your comments in in better perspective.
1: Okay, Hisham, please. Uh,
2: Thank you for that. Um, Two things, the first, um, you're right, it is possible that uh, the executive could pardon um, once it goes through to its final sort of stage, um, the second thing um, is is Egypt ready for democracy and George Bush? Um, i'll be very frank with you um, i've heard many times over the past few years, which is not quite what you're you're getting at, but it reminds me of this discussion um, uh, were these uh, were these people in Tahrir and other places during two thousand and eleven <coughs> were they simply you know, the puppets of uh, a foreign agenda. Um, Were they people who had been trained in in Serbia and by Google and, you know, all these sorts of things. And um, I I realize you haven't said that, but I'm just bringing up this point because it strikes me that we forget that people do have agency. That they do have agency over their own destinies and futures. Um, And uh, I was there during that time. Um, I was also uh, in Egypt, coincidentally, I believe, when George Bush started you know, uh, talking about these sorts of things, and, and there was no connection between the two whatsoever. Um, in terms of ready, um, I don't know any country in the world that's ready for democracy. Um, I really don't, um, including the United States of America, but it doesn't really stop us from giving people the opportunity to actually learn it along the way, and that's what I hope for Egypt. The same thing was said about Indonesia
3: after its democratic transition. People were saying, "Well, it's not going to work. Indonesia's not ready. It's too big." It's just right. No country is ready. It happens when it happens, and it's a long process, and often a difficult process. But you know, I didn't. You know, I wasn't there. Uh, but when I was watching it on TV, glued to you know Al Jazeera, um, I didn't see any kind of. Many photos of George Bush being held by the by the demonstrators. <laughs> I didn't, you know. Um, you know, yes, George, yes, we can. Kind of. <laughs> so I, 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 frankly, um, don't see the connection. And I think that kind of that, you know, the the post facto claims by by some, you know, well, you know, well, see, it worked, right? We kind of <laughs> it's a nonsense. I... Yeah, please, yes, it's here, yeah,
4: I think that we should also take... bear in mind that the violence uh, which the regime is exercising against these people uh, is perhaps directly proportional uh, to the danger that they represent. You know, if they would not they be so dangerous <coughs> with their ideas uh, and with their will uh, and with their agency, they shouldn't deserve uh, so much attention from uh, their own government.
1: So, uh, and I'd like to just to follow up on this, uh, the gentleman's point about Bush and democracy, etc. So what do we make of the, uh, the visit of John Kerry Hisham to uh, Cairo and his meetings with the, with the President?
2: Um, I think, at least from, from my vantage point, um, it represents that current in Washington DC right now that has made the decision um, that Egypt is extremely difficult as a country to deal with in terms of its democratic transition. Um, that it's prioritizing, um, as one should expect, um, different national interests and priorities in the region, particularly the peace treaty with Israel um, and counterterrorism operations, particularly in the Sinai. Um, and it's not quite business as usual, um, because I think there will be certain things that will be different. Um, but I think the relationship between the two countries is entirely secure. Um, and i wouldn 't be and right now um, uh, there 's still a certain amount of of aid that has been withheld, but most of it is actually well and truly on its way um, and John Kerry made it very clear that even the Apaches which were being held back um, will be getting there soon um, soon I expect in, in a matter of months not not beyond that, um, certainly by the end of the year and uh, I think that uh, that represents something also that we need to consider when we talk about the international community um, and its moves towards Egypt. On what basis are those moves being made? Are they being made on the basis of support for a democratic transition and human rights and all these sort of things? Or is it, is it really a far more realistic and realist frame of reference that we ought to be uh, keeping in mind? Sure. The gentleman at the front has a question.
5: The first comment I have is that I actually from came from Iraq and I really find it very offending for and, and not don't mean this at you but when say someone are these people ready for democracy I mean uh, and I accept uh, your comment here you know like i mean, what do you expect do we go back again to supporting uh, 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 dictators like Saddam Hussein and Hussein Barak and then wait for 40 years and then to come up to the same <clears throat> ending like what we are having now. So I think we need to be objective about our discussion. The way I see it, there are two things which are special in our region now. And the first one is like Anthony rightly mentioned or Hisham, I think uh, it's about, it's an emerging democracy. You know? So uh, uh, it, it comes after a political instability and it's an emerging democracy. The second thing is that in a lot of the Arabic countries, there are divided communities, and this is very uh, serious, because when you have divided community and emerging democracy, when the uh, elected, democratically elected leader, you know, they uh, ignore a significant minority, but powerful, you end up with turmoil, and that's what it's happening probably in, like, if we see, for example, in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere, Libya, you know, like, and it's potentially going to happen in, in Egypt, uh, because if, uh, 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 I mean, the way I'm, I see Egypt happening, really, is that there's a lot of similarities of what happened in the 50s, you know, when Gamal Abdel Nasser was the most popular uh, uh, leader, you know, the Egyptian, he was very popular, you know, and they started to do the same, almost the same path as uh, Sisi is going. But that's the question: is that uh, you know, like, uh, we need to dig deep into uh, uh, you know what are the issues are, and also there is the Tunisian example. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm really surprised that no one's touching on the Tunisian example. It's a it's a it's a a, a, a good example, you know, where the actually Tunisian people they uh, uh, decided to uh, common sense to prevail, and they put their differences aside. And then they decided to have an apolitical government. You know, the government actually should not be there. Shouldn't be anyone from the parliament. You know, which could be the way to go. You know, because politicians in a transitional democracy, in divided community, uh, they end up to be corrupted. You know, and, and, and that's it's a cycle. Thanks.
1: Okay, you guys want to comment on that, though
2: Thank you very much. Um, on Tunisia, I'd like to actually bring that up, even though. You know, the reason why we didn't bring it up is because we were talking about Egypt today. Um, But Tunisia is an excellent example. But I think that there are three things about Tunisia that are very different when you compare it particularly to Egypt. First of all, the strength and political force of the Tunisian army, which is completely different and cannot be compared. That's one. The, The second is the effective popularity and power of the trade union movement in Tunisia. Again, something that is very unlike in Egypt um, and very powerful in Tunisia. And the third is that the different political forces that were at work in Tunisia, none of them had a majority. So they were forced to either find a way to work together or the whole thing comes to pieces without anybody actually being able to take over. Um, And I think that that was something quite positive. Um, I have great criticisms for the Anahda movement in Tunisia but I give them credit, as I give credit to those who are not from the Nahda, uh, from other political forces in the country, to sitting down and deciding, look, we want this to work, even if it means that we have to give up certain things because we're giving them up in order for the transition to continue as opposed to failing. So uh, I personally have high hopes for Tunisia. I hope that it works out well. Um, I haven't given up on any, other, uh, any of the other countries involved, um, including Libya. Incidentally, for other reasons, um, I just think that in Tunisia it might happen sooner rather than later, in, as compared to other places. But Anthony, please, uh. sure.
3: Um, I mean, I, <clears throat> I agree with what Hisham said on Tunisia. Um, the, the interesting question is whether the, whether um, it was that absence of that majority that forced the different political actors to say, "Well, we have to work together," or whether there was something <coughs> where they took a decision hmm. themselves that, you know what, this works if we work together mm. or, or it doesn't. And for me, the most, and I don't, know, I don't know what the answer to that was. It may have been one or the other. Mm. To me, the most disturbing thing about the Egyptian transition always was, uh, and this was across, pretty much across the political spectrum, mm. was this, it's a zero-sum game. Yeah. I win, mm. uh, yes. that you yes. lose. And in the end, what's happened is everyone has lost. Uh, you know, a military which was either you know, variously reluctant or, or keen to take over, whatever what, your analysis of what the military's motivations were, in the end, it, it, comes down, it comes down to them. And they're now left with running the country. Uh, and I think it's going to be very, very difficult in the current circumstances, illustrated by what we just witnessed with Christ, right? this is This is not... You know, okay, we've secured the presidency now. We're, now we can, you know, relax and open things up a little bit. Now, you know, there's another point. It may be that after the parliamentary elections that, that that they'll ease off if wiser heads are prevailing. But that decision is another illustration that wiser heads are not prevailing. That this is still a zero-sum game. And the military decided, well, you know what, we are going to now make, you know, put our point across. Encouraged by countries outside outside of Egypt as well. Encouraged by um, gulf money that's coming in, encouraged by others to, to, kind of, to crack down. Now, you know, there was an earlier question about, and Hisham talked about, you know, the, the role that Western countries, the role of the international community now plays. And, you know, the kind of choice between taking a, you know, human rights pro-democracy, uh, approach or one where you more narrowly focused on your interests. Um, my, my view on that is slightly different <clears throat> in that I, I worked as a foreign service officer for, for 13 years. I know that in the, in the end, um, you know, foreign policy tends to be more about interest than it does tend to be about values. My argument to the US, to the Australian government, to other governments is it is not in your interest. Mm. Forget about values, democracy, human rights, the things you say you support, leave them to one side, it is not in your interest for the current situation in Egypt to hold. Because what what it is going to do, it is going to generate violence, instability, radicalisation, that you might not see the results of next year or the the year after, but you will eventually see. Um, When we look at those things that concern the West most, you know... The, the terrorism or the, or the jihadist groups that came out of the region, they don't pop out, out of nowhere. They didn't, it's not some guy waking up in a mosque someday and saying, well, you know what, I'm going to go and, uh, and, and you know, uh, fly a plane into a building. They uh, emerge out of processes and circumstances um, uh, in the region. They emerge over a period of time. And one of the contributing factors in the past has been this process as we're stuck between the anvil of authoritarian regimes uh, uh, and, uh, and, and limited opportunities for, for um, political expression, um, you spin these things off. So it's not in our interest, you know, if we might view it in counterterrorism terms, in terms of the immediate problems that you face in Sinai, the immediate challenges that you face in terms of securing uh, the, the, um, the border between Israel and Egypt. I would even say to the Israelis, it's not in your interest to go through another decade like the, uh, like Egypt did in the 1990s of a confrontation between a military regime and and radical Islamists it's not in your interest because things will spin off from that
1: anthony that's right. i guess that's right but you know what what the the bottom line of that is that you have to ask people in in power to give away some of that
3: power don't you yeah well but look in in Egypt it's a very there's a very you know, and I'm oversimplifying this, but there's there's a, there's an easy thing. Fine, if you're going to say, let's say for a mo- let's say for the moment <clears throat> that I completely agree with you, the Egyptian military that every single member of the Brotherhood is a, is a terrorist. Fine, leave them in jail. Release the thousands of other people that are not members of the Muslim Brotherhood. Why close off political space for them? Why close off avenues for political expression? There? Mm. <clears throat> Why give you know younger generation Egyptians that want to see a thoroughgoing revolution in the country no hope? I mean, you know, people talk about the dangers in Egypt today. For me, you know, um, more dangerous than the process of radicalization amongst the young is the process of disillusionment. The people will pull back from politics because, well, there's no point. And it's precisely these people who you want to be in politics because they draw a line at violence. Because they say, if I don't have peaceful options, then I'm just gonna pull back. And they're in many ways, they're the ones you don't want to lose, not the ones (coughs) that um, will be driven by the lack of political opportunities towards to that.
1: I think we should. Uh, look, I'll we'll take a. I've got 100 questions myself, but I, right. well, let's, let's take one here from this. Um,
6: it's been very interesting listening to how you talk about being a popular culture, and also how you um, are saying there's sort of three groups in Egypt there's you know, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, there's the and then there seems to be this, this new wave. I wonder if you can put some percentages around that and also that this, um, this, this spring you know happened back in 2011 so I, I would have thought that there's, there's a sort of an, another generational effect coming through yeah. and that those people uh, you know who, were, who who were young watching that in 10, 11, 12 13, 14, have started to uh, determine what camp they fall in. And I'd I'd like your observations on whether in fact they are going to be a force to be reckoned with. And are we going to see the the, the spring blossom into a summer? Okay,
1: so there's three questions, right? Mm -hmm. Percentages, how the young are looking at it, and will the spring become a summer? Do you want to take, like, one each or...? Do all three. I'll, t- I'll take the
2: percentage as well. The yeah. numbers guy. <laughs> I, I, used to, I used to work with Gallup, um, and we did a lot of polling in Egypt, and I've been very curious about, about this because um, for the last three years, I think many of us have interpreted Egypt and other countries in the region through mm, not the best sources. Um, I, I say this as I'm you know, looking at Twitter for my news, um, and it's a very useful medium. It's the last medium that I would go to to judge pu- uh, public opinion in Egypt. Um, so. Uh, you mean if, Twitter? Uh, I would social, social media. media in general. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's remotely representative. Um, because it's in the hands of an unrepresentative small group, is in- that right? Indeed, yeah. indeed. And um, uh, in terms of those percentages, and I'm not. Uh, these percentages I wouldn't put. Um, as equivalent to you know, support for presidential candidates like uh, the current president, for example. But if I, uh, if I had to put numbers on it, um, I would say that the, the forces that back the establishment, um, including the military and other state institutions, I would put them around 75% of the population. I would put the Brotherhood and their allies and sympathizers at around 20, 25 tops, uh, but I'd put them around 20. And I would put that third group, which um, is being spoken of in a very laudable tone, as it deserves to be, but I wouldn't put a past five. I would not put a past five. Um, but they will be far more prominent um, in many of our perceptions. And I don't mean either one of these people here, or any of you, really, because I know that you, you, you're, you, you don't view Twitter or social media as representative. But in media discourse, we definitely um, put a great deal more weight on that group because they access the media very well. Um, They are very impressive, um, those who have been arrested, those who are not, um, but uh, I don't think that they've been able, unfortunately, to develop critical mass since February 11th, 2011.
1: Uh, can I, can I, I just want to jump in on that because I think it is actually linked a bit to your question which is you know, how, how young people are, are viewing it. I, I guess the, the the Twitterati or the social media folks, mm. is it right to say that their main uh, objection to how things have been under Mubarak was lack of freedom? Was it a freedom question
2: for them? Uh, I think there was more than that, um, but I would, uh, I would prioritize political freedoms in that space. Um, I would say that, I mean, just to throw out more numbers here, um, when you asked uh, ask Egyptians in 2011, as we did, as Gallup, um, did you support the protest that resulted in the resignation of Osama Barok? Um, it was, I think, about 78% that said yes. Okay, Uh, 11% said they actually physically participated, which is huge, you know, in a country of, uh, at that point, it was 82 million people. Mm. You know, that's huge Mm. Um, and unprecedented. Um, I don't believe that they were all there for the same reasons. Mm. And I think, as Anthony alluded to, I think most of those people that did go actually thought that their job was completed on February 11th. Mm -hmm. I think there were far fewer who thought that actually this is stage one. I think there were far fewer of that 78% that were supportive, um, including also that 11% that actually went. Um, And I think that this also plays into how things worked out over the last three years. Um, They were not, uh, for a variety of reasons, but they were not capable of actually delivering critical mass in terms of political parties, in terms of political pressure. Um, And as time goes goes on, they become less and less relevant in that regard. Hmm. Okay, so they were significant, for example, in the second round of the presidential election Mm. um, in 2012. I mean, it was a very close race, but they were significant in that regard. I think they would have been even more significant later on had Morsi tried to bring them in, because not in terms of representation, but in terms of skills, in terms of influence, I think that they certainly had more than their numbers suggested. and now I think that they're uh, they're they're very marginalised, um, and they've been talking in those terms actually since May 2013. They've been talking about how they are going back to the margins and by force, mm. you know, by compulsion, mm. um, because there isn't space for them to mm. engage. Mm.
3: I mean, the question the question that raises that is does it matter that they only represent that they only have five percent of the population?
7: Um,
3: uh, it matters if you're. It matters if you're saying, well, there's a small group that by force that only represents 5% of the population, mounts a coup and uh, takes power. In that case, it does matter. Mm. But if you're talking about people that, uh, for a a range of reasons, were not able to transform uh, um, what was a very prominent role in 2011 Mm -hmm. into Uh, into broad political appeal. And a lot of those reasons were were down to their own, you know, a combination of naivety, inability to organise, inability to engage a broader population. Um, um, Nevertheless, the ideas they represented um, were still positive ideas about the way in which the country should be transformed and the way in which the system should be transformed. Um, uh, so for me you know it, it, it's the great kind of it's the line that you know you used to um, Western, comment, Western commentary used to be very dismissive in the past of about you know the liberals in, in, in not just Egypt but in Arab societies in general. Ah oh, they're all soft they'll never amount to anything they represent a small percentage of the population well um, Hisham is right there were the people came to the streets in 2011 for a whole range of reasons, but these guys, these liberals, these soft kind of people were very much at the forefront. Uh, it wasn't the Muslim Brotherhood that everyone feared that overthrew Mubarak. Uh, it, was, it was the great mass of the Egyptian population, but it was these people that people tended to, tended to dismiss um, who, and who did have, as I said, thoroughgoing ideas about how the country should change that were able to... to, to bring together to, to, uh, to represent uh, um, uh, those demonstrations. Now, they failed afterwards. They failed to organise politically. But I, I don't think the fact that they only represent 5% is a reason just to dismiss them and say, well, these guys are not, not important. It's the ideas they represent, uh, rather than their inability to transform those ideas into widespread, widespread appeal, which is important, I think.
4: Yes, I, I agree with you on that point, and uh, I would just uh, add that uh, it's, we, I think we need to look at the direction of this 5% uh, in a longer perspective. And uh, generally, I can't see uh, any revolution in the history which has been led by the majority of the population on any big cultural change uh, which has been uh, uh, led by, the majority of the population, it's quite common, eh? and not only in Egypt, but also in European history, that big change happened uh, because an enlightened, different majority, minority started to think differently. And uh, I think that this is something which uh, happened in Egypt 2011, and uh, which uh, uh, challenges also the the international community, because they are questioning uh, our own idea of political legitimacy, of democracy, and uh, when they call for social justice. Now, do we have social justice uh, in Europe? I mean, I, I don't want to talk about Australia because I'm, I'm relatively new, new to Australia, but social justice, it's a, it's a big issue, not only in Egypt, uh, but in, in other countries in the world. They, they contested the uh, corruption uh, and um, and and the and the abuse of politics by uh, an elite so i i also think that we should look at the intergenerational uh, links uh, between activists so this young uh, avant-garde and generation this 5% and it's true that it is fi- it's a 5% uh, uh, of a population uh, which is majoritarian young In, the majority is very young uh, but they uh, they have been grown within families uh, where politics uh, was uh, always uh, uh, discussed, uh, and uh, uh, they are the heirs uh, of generations of political activists. And this continuity should be acknowledged uh, uh, if uh, something new should be constructed. Thank
1: you. The gentleman at the back, been...
7: I have some statement and a question for Mr. Hesjedal, <laughs>
1: if you don't mind
7: because you are very much in in favor of not calling that move by General Sisi as a coup d'etat. The question is just, uh, the first question is why the people came to the street on that June 30th and what their question was, and then if General uh, Mohamed Morsi was able to, entrench and move ahead and put those terms into the constitution of that country, which raised that uh, concern between among popular, popular uh, the 70, 75% you are talking about, to come to the street and ask for his removal. You said, okay, let him be four years in office and then move, remove him or later remove him. But what happens if you put on those terms for example, Sharia law into the constitution, and then what happens. And when you call that coup d'etat, I leave it to that 70, 75% population to, to find the definition for that terms. Can you can, have... Yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you very much.
2: So um, thank you, That's, uh, those are very useful. Um, Why did people go to the streets on June 30th? Um, I think that there were many different types of people there that day. Um, I think you had very different groups there. You had many people who had originally supported the 25th of January uprising. I knew many people like that personally. Um, I knew many who had supported the uprising in 2011 who stayed home. Um, But there were certainly many who had decided that they would go on June 30th. Um, I knew many, and there were many, who supported the former regime. Um, who also went to the streets on June 30th as well, in opposition to (coughs) Mohamed Morsi. Um, There were a range of different groups, to be honest with you, I mean, um, uh, an offshoot from the Brotherhood, um, um, Abdel Manan, Abul Fatouh's party, Strong Egypt, also went on June 30th. Revolutionary Socialists went on June 30th. a liberal group uh, led, a very small liberal group by Am Hamzawi went on June 30th. You had, you had quite a, a broad variety of people. And I'm not sure that I would say that they went because of your second question about how uh, the constitution had been changed. Um, the, the constitution of 2012 was, in my opinion, an awful document for very many reasons. Um, one thing I personally was not afraid of was it suddenly Um, uh, turning Egypt into an Islamist country um, uh, because it it didn't have that capacity. Um, The the legal changes that took place, and to be honest, it was a very poorly written document anyway for very many reasons, and I wrote on this at the time. Um, The the main issue with that document, frankly, more so than the content, and the content was bad, but not quite for the reasons that I think you might be alluding to, um, it it was a document that was essentially rammed down people's throats. Okay, um, I mean, it was finished in, in sort of, what was it, a 24-hour running session. Um, it was certainly not a consensus-based document. And when I compare that to what happened in Tunisia, um, I find the whole process incredibly wanting. Um, So I think that people did go to the streets for a variety of reasons. There would have been some that would have gone precisely because of the fears that you suggest. There would have been many who would have gone because they wanted a new type of politics. There would have been many that have gone for purely economic reasons because the economic situation was getting rather bad. There would have been many who had thought that the brotherhood would be very different in power um, and very progressive and positive and then became disappointed. Um, we certainly saw the popularity decrease tremendously from actually uh, April 2012, okay, down to uh, May 2013 before the protests. So it's, it's hard to say what was the largest group because nobody has that sort of data, um, but we do know there are very, very many different types of groups. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, uh, of, of I, I assume what you're talking about is Oh, what if he had been successful in turning it into an Islamist state? What? The main question was, if he was able to do those changes into the constitution, yes. then what choices do people have? Oh, what choices do they have, have besides, or, or, but, but that wasn't the justification for July 3rd. Okay, I mean, this is something that people talk about now um, and afterwards, but on July 3rd, it wasn't about the constitution at all. Um, it was about the fact that there were people who had gone to the streets, um, that a call for early presidential elections um, and Mohammed Morsi refused to budge. That was the justification for July 3rd. It wasn't the constitution. Um, the constitution could have been changed later on. And in fact, as you saw, um, uh, the first thing was the removal of the president. Um, the first thing wasn't you know, um, creating a new constitution that came later on. Um, and I think that w- we have to keep in mind how these things developed. And as I said, I thought the constitution was terrible for all sorts of reasons, but that wasn't what drove people to the streets. Other reasons, I think, were more prevalent among the protesters.
3: The other thing I'd say there is that um, Iran didn't become an Islamic republic because they changed the constitution. These things are not, you know, a you don't, you don't, country doesn't uh, suddenly uh, transform itself, um, uh, implement Sharia or whatever version of Islamic law simply because someone wrote the constitution in a different way and it says, you know, Sharia is now our law. Uh, These things uh, need to be implemented, transformed. There has to be genuine popular support for it. There has to be security forces that that back. There have to be support amongst the military. All those things would have to happen. And all those things would never have happened in Egypt. My point is that Simply, simply leaving Mohammed Morsi in power and one day waking up and changing the constitution and it becomes the Islamic Republic of Egypt is not going to make Egypt an Islamic state. Yes, sir.
8: Um, I remember when uh, Morsi was elected and he said he thanks his family, Ahli and Ashirati and my group. He, by this way, he started to exclude the rest of the people. Mm-hmm. From the uh, the benefit being president for all, and that was 24 hours before he opened his chest and said, "I'll be president for everyone." This is the start of that. The second point is the attack against the judicial system, against the the the, um, the high court, and um, even they trimmed the number of the member of the high court to get rid of people they saw they are opposite to them or more enlightened or whatever, actually, I- including um, um, a, a woman, which was a very um, um, advanced development in the judicial system in, in Egypt. So this one, the, sc- the people went to the 30th of June because for, for one main reason, they felt that the Ikhwan will take over the whole Egypt and exclude the rest and they were scared that they would take over also the military. It was easy for them to take, the, to um, uh, dismiss the, the top military and get their people and so on. And they tried to do that in the police. They tried to, to infiltrate the, the people and the police is actually neutral in, in this way, but they infiltrated people who are wanted to get. The third point which also, uh, uh, people from, what we call Salafist or sympathy um, of, of the brotherhood, they started to run the law on their hands. And one example was they saw uh, um, a man and his fiancee walking together, they killed both of them because this was against the Sharia. So the, I, it is not the, the uh, uh, it, it's a military coup. You, you're saying it's mythical military coup. You, that's your opinion. And we in Egypt, as we said, 75, Percent of people, they say it was a necessity of the a solution to a, 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 a no way solution. That was the, the thing. I'll give you just one question. The, after the, 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 um, the um, uh, 2011, 2015, Dmitry stood uh, beside the people. Mubarak read the message, so he gave up the things. In the 30s of June, Dimitri stood beside the the, the the people. Morsi did not read the message. In in the opposite, he was told w- once and twice on thrice, please let the people elect you again or put yourself for election, and he refused. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say I don't ac- accept the word of a coup or a popular coup. It was a revolution. 20 million people wrote and uh, tomorrow re- uh, requesting the impeaching of the president. This happened in California, I think 20 years ago. People got um, uh, uh, impeachment to the governor, and then uh, went to the, to the uh, program and said, I'll be the next governor, and then he was elected. So this is, you, can, you cannot compare the situation in Egypt with the modern or Western democracy. This is. The third point I want to mention is uh, Morsi won with around 5 million votes from the first round. And we know how election in Egypt at that time was uh, things, we, we, oil and sugar. And also have the, uh, uh, there was the, the uh, romantic, or the romanticization of the brotherhood. They are the, uh, the, the good Muslims are uh, the uh, uh, they, they will be good for Egypt and they will <coughs> disappoint it. Last point about ju- justice in Egypt. You complain about uh, uh, execution decision and other things. What about Guatanamo? People turned 12 years in, in, um, in Guatanamo without even giving uh, them uh, a day on the court. Is, is that democracy? Is that appreciation of human rights?
2: I have a lot okay. to go through. Um, first of all, I'm an American, and because I'm not an American, I feel no obligation to defend Gitmo. Um, in fact, I've written very critically about Guantanamo Bay many times. Um, I simply think that Egypt should have better standards than, than that. Um, in terms of a military coup, I didn't say it was a military coup, I said it was a coup, and I incidentally thought that 2011 was also a coup. coup. And the word coup has a very, very touchy connotation, I think, for many people who think that it necessarily means that it came uh, without popular consent. And we've had this discussion, I think, quite extensively over the past year. Um, I think it was a coup because it's a textbook definition of the word, where you have a military intervene, arrest and as you say, there were many people out on the streets, um, but that's, uh, that's kind of textbook in that regard. Uh, and again, I think it was very popularly, uh, popularly done, in the same way that I think in 2011 it was also popularly done, but with different conditions. Um, when you talk about um, the role of certain Salafi movements, um, You mentioned that one example, there are many other examples, unfortunately, as well, particularly around sectarianism, which was something that I was extremely concerned about during Morsi's year in power. Um, You saw uh, radical, uh, I don't like to call them clerics, let's call them preachers, um, who were were riding the sectarian wave, and it made things very difficult for for Christian Egyptians, for the Copts, um, for other minorities as well. Um, and just a few days, unfortunately, before June 30th, you saw a very sectarian incident happen where a Shiite family was, was lynched. Okay? Um, all of these things I don't think ought to be disputed, and I think it's very, uh, uh, very important. I would, I would question the, uh, the suggestion that Mohammed Morsi managed to take out the top leadership of the military, because in, in my opinion, Mohammed Tantawi was replaced by Skaf, he was not replaced by Mohamed Morsi. Mohamed mm-hmm. Morsi, in my opinion, rubber-stamped the process. But Abdul Fatah Hassisi was the choice of the military leadership, he was not the choice of Mohamed Morsi. Um, no matter how, and this incidentally was very uncomfortable for supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood to accept in Egypt at the time, because I said this very early on that there's no way that in six weeks Mohammed Morsi changes institution of 60 years. Said no, Mohammed Morsi, batar, yeah, yani he's he's managed, he's been successful. I said. No, this was in the works for quite some time, and General Sisi, as he was then, was chosen by the military to replace Tantawi, not by Morsi, that's my opinion. Um, you're absolutely right in terms of the fact that, and this I think we've, we've agreed upon over the course of the last hour, um, Morsi and the Brotherhood, and I do say Morsi and the Brotherhood because he never acted independently, right? Um, was very exclusive in the way that he pursued governance. Um, that's also not a, a topic that ought to be of dispute. Um, and I think I think the more honest and wiser supporters of that movement will finally begin to admit that. It would be nice if they admitted it at the time, but you know, better late than never. Um, and you're also right that during, uh, particularly right after the constitutional decree, um, supporters of the Brotherhood surrounded the High Court, actually su- surrounded the Supreme Court, and would not allow the judges to enter. I was very close to where that was, and that was very concerning to me, um, that any party of power would do that. Um, and then there were other examples of not, uh, not just courts, but also the Brotherhood leadership calling on their members to go and defend the presidential palace, um, essentially calling for vigilante action, right? Um, none of these things, I think, ought to be in dispute. Um, I, uh, I, I just think that we have to be very, very, real, very careful about what terms we use. Um, one could argue that it was a revolution. I know many people who did. Um, I don't think, incidentally, that uh, the fact that it would have been or would not have been is negated by calling it a coup as well. Uh, I think actually those two things could very well uh, happen at the same time. Um, you cer- in my opinion, you certainly saw that in 2011, for example. I mean, that was by definition a military coup, okay? Uh, even though people like to think the Mubarak did it voluntarily, but I, I think we all know better than that. Um, I understand the sensitivity of the word. Uh, I understand that, at least in some people's minds, it means that there was no agency for the people. Um, But I I think that we just need to call things what they were. The circumstances that led to those different historical events taking place were were very different. I think the, the state of the Egyptian political arena was very different as well, which is why I presume it was reported in such a, uh, such a different way. Um, and it will persist now um, because of what happened afterwards. Okay? Because uh, you, see, uh, you see the weeks, um, and not the months, but the weeks that happened after July 3rd being very different than, unfortunately, the weeks after February 11th. And I think that's why this will persist, um, whether we like it or not. Let me just bring Anthony in, and unfortunately we're going to have to
1: uh, wrap up. We've uh, reached a lot
3: of time. Um, I'll be quick. I mean, in, I, I watched the, obviously, debate about whether it was a coup or not, and, and uh, like Hisham, I mean, and I didn't describe it as a coup at the time in 2011. I also came to that conclusion that if we're going to describe... July last year as a coup, then we have to describe mm. by textbook example what happened uh, in the overthrow of Mubarak regime as a coup as well. But in the end, I also came to the conclusion that what matters is not what we describe the events on that day, but what happens afterwards. Mm. And here, in, you know, there are lots of lessons lying around here, uh, not just in Egypt. Um, the, the lesson for Morsi, and I'm sure the, the Brotherhood that have gone, you know, into, you know, s- circle the wagon survival mode uh, and are not. Uh, at least not publicly, looking critically at their period of rule. The lesson there is, uh, uh, unless you govern for all Egyptians, whether they voted for you or not, uh, then your legitimacy will be undermined, particularly at at moments of democratic transition when the institutions of democracy are not established. That is a lesson that Nouri al-Maliki in Iraq is learning today. Um, The question is, Will President Sisi also learn that lesson? And so far, he's demonstrated that he hasn't.
1: Thank you very much, Anthony. I'm afraid we are at the end because, look, I had some questions that I wanted to find out too, but I think we are able to continue this over refreshments at the back of the room, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So I would like to thank the panellists for a really wonderful and illuminating discussion which um, I enjoyed. I hope the audience enjoyed. And if we may, appreciate